Hi, and welcome to episode 13 of Up and Away, the Australian Aviation Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Frangu. This week, it's my absolute pleasure to say I have Wing Commander Maria Jovanovic on the show. Maz has had a stellar career in the Royal Australian Air Force as a P3 Orion pilot and a test pilot. She is now about to take command of Number 10 Squadron, where her career as a P3 pilot first began. Oh, and the sheer amount of aircraft she's flown as pilot and command is just crazy, and her story is truly inspiring. Thanks again for all your support. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle's up and away cast. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you do, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Now, fasten your seatbelt, and let's go. Hey, Maz, thanks for coming on Up and Away. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be a good chat, I think. Lots to talk about. (laughs) I think we might end up in trouble because I can literally talk about aeroplanes for hours. That's right. Maybe we'll do a multi-parter. We'll see. So if by the time everyone's listening to this and it's in like two or three parts, then you know what's happened. (laughs) I'm totally okay with that. Awesome. So uh, I'd like starting with this question. When did your aviation journey start and what inspired you to get into aviation? My aviation journey is a little bit different to most. You know how when you talk to a lot of people about uh, when they knew they wanted to be a pilot, they say they've Mm. always wanted to be one from when they were little kids. Uh, That wasn't like that for me. Uh, There was no aviation background in my family and I didn't even see an aeroplane for the first time until I was 12 when my family moved from uh, from Eastern Europe to New Zealand. So that was the first time I actually saw an airplane up up close. Uh, But what I did have growing up is I had these these two loves of science and adventure, and I knew that I wanted to do something that would allow me to combine those two things. And the other thing I knew was that I didn't want a desk job. I didn't want an office job which is ironic because I now largely work behind a desk. But (laughs) (laughs) certainly initially I wanted to do something that would let me combine science and adventure and that was sort of out of the ordinary. Um, And I was about 16 when flying started to crystallize as a pretty good way of combining all those things. Um, And it was around the same time I read uh, The Right Stuff by Tom Wolfe, which is an awesome book about um, test pilots and astronauts. And I don't think that, I've read that. So oh, it's I'm writing, amazing. I'm making my notes. Good, because the book is amazing. The movie is amazing too, The Right Stuff. If you haven't seen it, you must see it. Um, and all of that sounded really, really good to 16-year-old me, right? Um, and then when I was 17, I got a scholarship to a really cool place called the Walsh Memorial Scout Flying School in New Zealand. Um, and that's when I jumped in my first small airplane. So I jumped into a Cessna 152. And as soon as I took off on that first flight, I knew I wanted to be a pilot. I completely fell in love with it. Awesome. And that was the place I also got to do my first solo, which is a mind-blowing experience. Um, And I pretty much put in my Air Force application as soon as I left there. Yeah, right. So, um, yeah, I guess you thought about it pretty quickly and came to the conclusion that you wanted to do it as a career and be a pilot as a career. Yeah, so I, you know, like I said, that first flight, um, I instantly knew I wanted to be a pilot. And then I had a quick think about um, some of the ways to be a pilot, and the Air Force, uh, the Air Force came out on top as a pretty interesting and adventurous option. Um, did you weigh up any other things? Did at any point where you like, oh, maybe I'll do an airlines thing, or were you like, no, nah, this seems like the adrenaline thing that I'm into, and I want to do that kind of flying? I I didn't really know much about general aviation or the civil aviation industry at all because of my background. I just never had any connection to it. And so I never really looked into it too much because I saw the Air Force and went, yeah, I think this is for me. I, I think if I, if the Air Force thing hadn't worked out, I potentially would have gone down one of those routes. And I actually fly general aviation now as well on top of my Air Force flying. So um, there's definitely multiple ways one can do this. Yeah, totally. Oh, we'll get into the GA stuff soon, but... Um, so, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll have a chat about your RWF career. So... Um, What's the application process look like in getting into the RWF? What do you have to do normally? I'm going to caveat this with the fact that my information is about 20 years old because I'll be turning 20 yeah. years service in January. So for, for up-to-date information, people should really check out uh, Defence Recruiting and the websites. But in general terms, the process hasn't really changed in that you go and check out recruiting, you talk to them about your options, um, you do some tests, you do some interviews, 
um, and then you get streamed in the appropriate direction for for what it is you want to do. And I think sometimes people look at the Air Force and all they see is pilots. There's actually so many ways to get involved in aviation in the Air Force, from pilots to mission air crew to air traffic to operations to engineering to technical work. There's just so much. That's cool. And you definitely knew you wanted to do the pilot route, though. <laughs> I did. And in fact, this is kind of, in retrospect, this is kind of uncool. But um, when I applied, they asked for uh, top three options, your top three options, and I put down pilot, pilot, pilot. Oh. <laughs> and they're like, mm, all right, fair enough. We get the point here. Yep. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. You're like, there's no option here. This is just the only thing. <laughs> That's great. So um, maybe could you give us an overview of your career so far? Like um, you've done some amazing things with the RAAF and gone through lots of different diverse um, pathways and done a lot of different jobs. Uh, maybe give us a chronological overview of what you've done so far. Sure. It's been 20 years, so strap in. Yeah. Um, so I joined in uh, 2001 and I went to the Australian Defence Force Academy uh, where I studied maths and physics, a Bachelor of Science, and then I did an honours year. And that was really cool because I, growing up, I was a big nerd and I used that word with great affection. Um, so that really, really allowed me to indulge that passion for science. And then from there, I went to pilot training. We flew the CT4 up in Tamworth and then onto, onto Perth, onto Pierce to fly the PC9. And 2006, I got my wings, which was really a very cool thing. Uh, and I still remember it like it was yesterday. Um, then I got posted to the P3 Orion which is an absolutely magnificent aircraft. And I could talk just about that aircraft for hours. And we will. <laughs> if, not, if not longer. Yeah. Um, and I flew the P3 operationally for a number of years um, all over the world, including a few tours in the Middle East, uh, ops around um, Southeast Asia, Southwest Pacific, lots of cool exercises. Um, you know, if I had to summarize my P3 time, I would say that um, as, an, as a small Example, I have um, looked for pirates off the coast of Somalia, chased submarines off the coast of Southern California, and done search and rescue out of the Solomon Islands, and that's just to name a few, right? Um, after my P3 time, and by the way, I would say that being a captain of a P3 crew, I still think that's the greatest job in the world. Um, after my P3 time, I did a little bit of time doing operational test and evaluation, which was a nice lead into what I did next, which was go to the United States Air Force Test Pilot School in 2013-2014. Uh, in and that was an incredible experience. Um, very prestigious educational institution, a very unique opportunity to attend it. Um, and I had a blast there. Then I came back, I uh, worked as a test pilot for a couple of years before moving up into some um, flight commander command positions. Um, and I'm just about to actually take command of the first squadron that I um, that I started my operational career in, of number 10 squadron, and that's something I'm really, really excited about. That's awesome. So, all right, wait, let's get into the P3 stuff. You said submarines and pirates, <laughs> and I sort of knew a bit about some of these stories, uh, you know, um, knowing a bit about what you did before this interview, so I'm very keen to hear some more about this stuff. So what, what kind of work were you doing in, specifically? So the P3 is, I would say, one of the most successful military aircraft ever built of any kind. Um, a, number of, a number of countries around the world flew them, a number of countries around the world continue to fly them, and it is a magnificent aircraft that is multi-role, so you can, you can make it do what you want it to do. It was originally uh, designed and put into service to do maritime surveillance and uh, anti-submarine and anti-shipping warfare, and that's sort of what its core uh, role set is. Um, and then we used it for search and rescue, and it's magnificent for that. Uh, we used it for overland uh, surveillance in places like the Middle East, and it did a really good job at that. Um, and it, so it, it's very flexible, and we used it very, flexible, very flexibly, um, which I guess speaks to why I managed to do so many different things on it. The aircraft itself is absolutely amazing. So um, I, I love the P3 probably a little too much for an inanimate object. Um, <laughs> and I, I didn't even know how amazing it was until I went to test pilot school and I learned more about um, what makes aeroplanes unique mm. and, and what makes aeroplanes what they are. 
uh, when I came back, I really appreciated the P3 even more than I had uh, before I left because, you know, it's a four-engine turboprop aircraft that has a top speed in excess of 400 knots at sea level. Um, That's crazy. And it's an aircraft with a 100-foot wingspan that we f used to fly down to 100 feet over the water. Um, so you got to fly that aircraft at the corners of its envelope, which was a really, really cool thing to do. The much cooler thing about it still is what it does. And what I love about it most is that it does everything it does with a crew. Um, I love the crew construct. Uh, I love being a crew captain. And crew is a bit of a sacred word to me now because uh, of all the magnificent ex experiences I've had on a crew. Um, and th the variety of roles that the P3 and its crew did um, is really what made it such an awesome job. What kind of individual roles are there as a crew member on the P3? The P3 crew, um, so we're talking about a maritime P3 crew. Um, there's a different kind of P3 as well that we can talk about later if you like. But um, on, a, on a maritime P3 crew, there's a couple of pilots. Uh, there's a flight engineer. So this is the, the last um, aeroplane in the RAF inventory that has a flight engineer. Um, and that's because the aeroplane is effectively uh, an intricate system of ropes and pulleys that requires more than two people to yeah. manage it. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> yeah, it, is, right. <laughs> it is an analog aeroplane. It's very uh, It's very complex. T-56 um, engine is an absolute engineering marvel, but it requires a flight engineer to manage the systems. Um, then there's the, uh, there are the mission commanders. So on the Maritime B-3, we're talking the tactical coordinator and the navigator. Um, they are basically the brains of the operation. And then in the back, um, there is the sensor operators. And on the Maritime B-3, we had a guy called the sensor deployment manager who was like the boss of the sensor operators. Um, so that's kind of the crew complement for a, for a maritime crew. Um, the maritime P3 is being replaced by the PA, and uh, that crew looks a little bit different. It's a little bit smaller. And then there is a, another variant of the P3, the uh, the EW variant, which is what 10th Squadron, the squadron I'm, I'm about to go command, operates. And that crew complement looks a bit different again. So the way a crew looks is really related to what the aeroplane does, I guess. So, all right, let's talk about the pirates. <laughs> I keep pressing <laughs> this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah. yeah what was happening there uh, one of the things we used to do in uh in the middle east was anti-piracy operations down in uh off the coast of somalia and uh off the sort of horn of africa so it was just part of what we did um what we did during my three tours in the middle east awesome yeah and, and what what what's that kind of look like is it a more surveillance kind of role or it is really it's all surveillance so it's just what you're looking for that changes sounds pretty intense and pretty fun too <laughs> it, it is um and and in terms of submarine chasing and stuff like that um what what's that kind of look like again i presume that's a surveillance role and um are you really close to the water when you're doing that kind of stuff and what's that look like so i would say that anti-submarine warfare um uh, which is the core role of of the p3 and the p8 is pretty much the most fun you can have in an airplane it's a really complicated thing to do, but when it's working well, it's just amazing. Um, it's I've heard it likened to playing chess at um, at 400 kilometers an hour against an opponent that you can't see, and that's pretty much what it is. Wow. Um, when when it works well, it is it's like watching a dance, um, and and it's a real pleasure to be a part of it. Um, what happens on the back of the airplane is almost magic sometimes and watching acoustics operators do their work is uh, honestly it might as well be magic to me um <laughs> so it's it's really cool asw so anti-submarine warfare we call asw um it's a real team sport totally do you have to learn a lot about what they're doing in the back to properly execute your role as a pilot of the aircraft absolutely if on a crew that works well um everybody sort of knows what everybody else is doing and thinking and and that's why you can really work as a team. So we all learn tactics, and you know, as a pilot, I find myself learning oceanography. Not as much as uh, not as much as the acoustics operators, of course, but just you know, just the intros, so that I would know when they're saying stuff, what they're actually talking about. That's pretty cool. And there's that dialogue going on, and and do they ask you to do certain things, and you're like, okay, I've got to fly this sort of uh, this heading or something, and yeah, look, there's. Um, 
communications flow up and down the tube and the pilot's job is to position the aeroplane and the taco's job is to hunt the submarine and the sensor's job is to provide all the information that's required for that. That's a, that's a, the maritime variant. Um, when you look at something like the EW variant that 10 Squadron operates right now, it's the same, right? We're just looking for different things. So the pilots are positioning the aeroplane, the mission commander is running the mission and the sensors in the back are providing the information for us to do that. Cool. Have you flown the P-8? I have not. I have not. I may get to in the future, um, but not yet. Is it something you want to do? I don't know. I'm pretty happy where I am right now, although it is a really <laughs> cool aeroplane and I would I would love to just have a go at it, I guess. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. That leads me to my next question, actually. How many different types of aircraft have you flown? I imagine at test pilot school you flew quite a few, um, and I think we'll get into the nitty gritty about test pilot school soon. But yeah, what what have you flown so far? So I've flown over thirty types as as the first pilot, as the pilot of the controls, and at test pilot school was twenty three of those just in one year. Wow! And that was that was quite the experience. There was one week yeah. at test pilot school where I flew five different types in the week and by the end of that week i know that sounds like fun by the end of that week i was pretty much ready to die so um yeah. <laughs> there's like a happy medium between things being really interesting and things being too interesting five times in a week is too <laughs> a interesting yeah i, <laughs> I don't know yeah i don't know if there are many people who who can say that they know from personal experience that five different types of aircraft in a week is too many um so in terms of what I've flown, obviously uh, the P3 I've got the most time in because that was my operational type and now I'm back flying it again. Uh, but I have flown F-15s, F-16s, um, F-18s, some really weird stuff like the MiG-15, um, the AN-2 Colt, which is a massive Russian biplane, um, KC-135, extra 300 and then some you know some odd things like the fuga magister which is a french trainer which has a v-tail and has spin characteristics that are so interesting that they ended up having to put a keel on it um, i don't know oh. if you've ever thought about an airplane with a keel the fuga <laughs> no. has a keel and that was there a bit of a go. shock to me we use that one to uh to explore spin characteristics because it itself is so interesting uh so a wide variety um and Everything from gliders to to supersonic aircraft, so uh, you really get the the whole spectrum of flight. Super slow to incredibly fast. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. I know uh, fighters aren't your area of expertise, um, so to speak, but what's it like flying an F eighteen? I can't even begin to imagine that, how cool that would be. <laughs> Getting the exposure to the fighters was really cool. You know, the for, for a multi-engine girl like me. Um, getting the exposure to the fighters was uh, a real hoot. At USAF TPS, the three main types you fly all the time are the T-38, which is a jet trainer, mm -hmm. the F-16, and uh, and a C-12, which is a bit like a Kinge. So oh, yeah. you end up flying, spending a lot of time in fighters. Um, and for me, the most interesting thing was that it I was really scared before I jumped into a fighter for the first time, and I realized that I didn't need to be that uh, flying fighters or flying fighters in the role that I flew them, obviously I've never flown them in combat, um, was actually, it was easier than I had made it in my head. Um, mm. And it was so much fun. Um, I, I can honestly say that the only time I have had my internal gyros topple in an aeroplane was during my first F-15 flight because um, that aeroplane is just so overpowered that um, we did something in it that made me completely reconceptualize how I thought about gravity because yeah, we al wow. we almost went supersonic going straight up, which is amazing. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, flying the F-18 was awesome because I first got to fly it um, a bunch of times back here in Australia with one of the Arju test pilots um, and just to go out and, and explore the aircraft was amazing. Um, the F-18 has this really cool thing where it can you can fly it and fight it at really high angle of attack, at really high alpha. And uh, and doing that and playing with that was really an amazing experience. Yeah, it sounds incredible. And um, is it the kind of thing where you have to sort of train yourself to think way further ahead of the aircraft as well when you're in stuff that flies that fast? I think thinking ahead of the aircraft or using the, the next event 
uh, concept is something all pilots do and you just adapt how fast you do that to um, to the speed of the aircraft you know gliders go slow but things sometimes happen very fast in a glider even though your airspeed is low yeah. so how fast things happen in an aircraft doesn't necessarily have everything to do with how fast the aircraft is going if that makes sense mm. yeah, and, and totally. you, Anybody who's flown a tail dragger and who's ground looped on the ground on a tail dragger can definitely <laughs> confirm that 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 happens very very fast. And I imagine in gliders as well, you sort of do have to think quite far ahead because you know you're gliding, so you're you're not powered, so you have to think you know where am I going to go? How am I going to achieve this? You know. Yeah, there's no engine to save you, right? It's in some mm. ways, and I often talk about this when I talk to young people about flying who are really keen to get into powerful airplanes. I tell them that gliding is the purest of flight because in powered aircraft we talk about power plus attitude equals performance when we talk about you know the equation that is the basic of flight um, in gliding there's no power so it's just attitude equals performance and that takes uh, that takes a lot of skill because you don't have an engine to drag you out of trouble it's true that being said is there a lot of glider sort of training in the RAAF uh, not in the not in the Air Force no um, I think the cadets do a bit of gliding and we actually did uh, did gliding at the test pilot school because um, it's a really nice way to explore um, high lift and drag ratio stuff. So what has been some of your most fun aircraft to fly so far, do you reckon? Or, and uh, did, <laughs> do you have a favorite? <laughs> I always like asking favorite. <laughs> and everyone's like, I can never choose these things. Like <laughs> I can never say what a favorite thing is. That's a really hard question to ask somebody like me, right? And I, I got asked earlier today, um, what's the most memorable flight you've had? And and I basically oh, said, I, can't, list. I <laughs> can't choose one. You know, we can we can break them up into buckets and then we can pick one out of each of those buckets. Um, but in terms of favorite aircraft, you know, the, the aircraft that's closest to my heart is the P3 because of everything I have done in that aircraft and and how amazing that aircraft really is. Uh, and I'm absolutely stoked to be back flying it now. Um, so that that's my favourite. Um, some of my some of my um, favourite experiences in other aircraft are all to do with memorable things. So, so I think we should talk about that when we get to that question. Totally, yeah. sounds good. So, um, in your experience, are there many women pilots in the RAAF? There aren't many, but that number is increasing. Uh, so, to give you to give you some context. Uh, we got our first female pilots in 1988 um, to amazing women who broke broke through that ceiling. And then when I graduated uh, pilot training in 2006, I was number 13. Um, and wow. since we've had quite a few more women graduate, so now we have an increasing number of women. Um, we also have women in other aircrew roles, so we're talking mission aircrew, uh, what used to be navigators, etc. Uh, we now kind of group them as mission aircrew. Um, so... It is still very heavily male-dominated. Uh, women comprise about just under 5% of air crew in the Air Force, uh, but it is increasing. That's cool. Yeah, I think um, in general in Australia and around the world, it's you know quite a small percentage of pilots, and I think it was slowly getting there, so hopefully we can bump those numbers up. That 4 to 5% uh, is actually a reasonable number for anywhere you go, which is kind of weird how that works out, but whether you're talking about airlines or different air forces around the world, um, it all seems to sit around that four or five percent. Uh, what I can tell you is the air force is doing absolutely everything it can to uh, to increase the number of women um, who get into equi roles and also technical roles and engineering roles, uh, because we've recognised that that's good for everybody, right? Totally, of course. What's your experience been like as a woman in this field of aviation? Do you think it's changed or evolved over the years? Uh, let me start off by saying that my experience over the last 20 years in the Air Force and over 15 years of flying has been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I've had a ball and there is honestly nothing else I'd rather be doing or nothing else that, I, that I'd rather have done. Um, the experience is changing as the number of women increases. So uh, my experience largely has been one of being the only woman um, in my surroundings. So if, you were, if I was to show you a photo of my a pilot's course at graduation, I was the only one. If I was to show you a photo of my test pilot school class, I was the only one. Um, and so that has, that has kind of defined my experience. And that hasn't been bad, right? I have, uh, I've had a, a great time and a very positive time. And I've grown a lot as a person um, throughout that time. That can be a lot to take. Um, and I'm 
I'm pleased to tell you that that is less and less of an issue as we have as we have more women entering the role. Um, and you know the feedback is largely positive. Um, things are changing, but um, they are changing for the better. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that's good to know, um, particularly that your experience has been positive so far, because um, I'm sure there's a lot of uh, younger women who are thinking about getting into this as a career and uh, potentially going, oh, if I'm going to be the only woman doing this job, I don't know what it's going to look like. And, you know, I, I don't want to be negatively impacted because of that mm -hmm. or have a terrible experience. So I think it's good to see that, you know, even if you're the only one, you should definitely get out there and do it and, you know, pursue it as a thing. If you want to do it, you should definitely get out there and do it. Um, look, I'm not going to tell you that it hasn't been challenging at times. Of course it has. But it's challenging for everybody. Um, you know, pilot course, for example, was difficult for everybody, for all my course mates that weren't women, that weren't the only woman there. It was difficult for them too. So um, there have been challenges along the way, but um, overall it's been a very positive experience and I would I would certainly encourage any young woman who's interested to give it a crack. Awesome. And is there any tips or tricks that you reckon we should be doing to encourage and inspire more women to get into aviation and particularly pursue a career in the RAAF? This is a really interesting question because it goes well beyond aviation and it goes well beyond the RAAF. Um, the Air Force is doing, like I said, everything it can to encourage um, young women to apply and to have a go. Uh, but they're doing that at the appropriate time, which is, you know, senior high school. Um, my experience of talking to both primary school students and secondary school students is that um, gender roles when it comes to occupations are set really early. Um, and yeah. usually by the time I get, um, I get to talk to uh, senior high school girls, they already know or think they know exactly what they can and can't do. And there's very little I can do at that point to tell them that they can do something that they think they can't. So I think the problem we have is actually uh, societal. Um, so what do we need to do as a society? We need to make role models really obvious to young kids. Uh, and that's not just um, women in non-traditional occupations, also men in non-traditional occupations. So, you know, things like... Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, you, you know what I'm talking about. So I've been I've been talking um, for a long time about getting, you know, six people into um, early primary school classrooms, um, and you might make it, and you you could make it any mix of people, but you could make it a woman in a flying suit, a woman in a science lab coat, and a woman in a miner's helmet, but just as importantly, a male nurse, and uh, and a male primary school teacher, and a stay at home dad. Because all those are non-traditional uh, non-traditional pursuits, and we need to get everybody comfortable that they're all good to go. Totally, yeah. You can do whatever you want, and it doesn't. You can matter. do whatever you want to do. Cool. So, in your aviation journey so far, what's been some of the biggest challenges? You said that you know pilot school is tricky, and it's tricky for everyone. What kind of difficulties did you face, and uh, challenges, and stuff like that, and how did you overcome them? One of the things that's unique to military aviation is the pace of learning. So the way I would think about it is that anybody can be anybody can learn to be a pilot uh, as long as they have enough time. Um, with military aviation, you have a set amount of time and a set amount of resources, so you have to stick to this learning curve. Um, and the way I would describe that is you get shown something once, um, you get sort of talked through it once, and then it's assumed that you can do it. Um, and that's how you can find yourself, you know, from when you start pilot's course and you may have never sat an aeroplane before to the end of pilot's course being pretty proficient at a whole bunch of things. That's why it can happen so quickly. Um, and that actually continues for the rest of your military career too. You know, you keep switching between jobs and kind of every time you get good at something, it's time to move on and, and learn something and do something new. And like, I was just getting good at that. That's right. I was just <laughs> getting really good at that. And now it's time to, um, to do something else, right? Uh, that has been, that's by design. So it's not an accidental challenge, but that certainly has been a challenge for me. It's a very positive kind of challenge. It's uh, it's one that drives you to grow and learn and compound your knowledge. So when I look when I look at the things that are in my head now, um, if I look back even a few years, I just I just can't believe how much that knowledge base has expanded. Um, so that's you know that's a positive kind of challenge that I um, that. I continue to live with and I actually now really enjoy encountering. Um, in, terms of, 
in terms of a more negative kind of challenge, um, I would say that I was one of my own biggest challenges because I um, I have this thing that I've lived with forever called imposter syndrome where I, for the longest time, thought that I wasn't where I was because I was good at stuff, um, that I was where I was because, I don't know, I was lucky or that I had fooled some selection panel or another. Um, and imposter syndrome is something that people talk about and write about a lot. Um, so I had to find a way of getting around that so that I could actually fully enjoy what I was doing. Um, and it took me a few years, but I, uh, but I got there. I think that's a really big issue for a lot of pilots. Like I'm pretty early in my, you know, aviation career slash um, experience so far, and um, I just hear that come up a lot, particularly with people who I admire. And I'm like, you know, even like yourself who have done so many amazing things, and one of the most experienced people that I could ever imagine speaking to in regards to flying or aviation. And you're like, yeah, no, uh, it's something I experience and I go through. Um, why do you think that's a thing with aviation and what kind of tricks and tips have you got for people to overcome that? It's not just a problem with aviation. It, in my mind, it's actually related to self-awareness because, you know, we're all fundamentally aware of all our personal shortcomings. So um, we, we project that into everything we do. And mm, yeah. um, so it's certainly not unique to aviation. My sister is, a, is an amazing doctor um, and she suffers from exactly the same thing. Um, and I, and I, many, I know many other people who do too. And it's not, it's not a woman thing. It's just a self-awareness thing. Um, I, the reason I talk about it is for exactly the reason you said. Uh, people kind of assume that they are on their own um, and that they experience this because they're not very, um, you know, they're not very advanced in whatever they're doing or they're not very experienced just yet when actually it just follows you around, right? Yeah. Um, so no, normally when I talk about this, I talk about it with a picture of me with an F-15 behind me on, on a screen and people just can't put two and two together. Um, you know, they, <laughs> they can't believe that this person who's standing in front, in front of this amazing airplane that she's just flown is telling them that she suffers from the same thing they do. Um, and it, it can be quite liberating, right? Um, in, terms of, in terms of tips and tricks, um, I actually came face to face with my imposter syndrome at test pilot school, um, where I it was the first time that I saw it in real time. Because imposter syndrome is something that eats at you. Um, it kind of you store it up, and then every once in a while, it just um, it just breaks the banks, and I call it spewing molten crazy. Um, when when that does happen, but usually it just sort of sits in the background. Whereas yeah. at test pilot school, I was in this interesting situation after one of the missions where I saw it in real time and I saw that I was watching somebody do exactly what I just did and I thought it was really cool. But when I was doing it, it felt terrible. Um, and I realized that that was, that was imposter syndrome in real time. So once I felt that, I knew how to recognize it so that when it came up, I could just sort of I guess, say to it in the back of my head, okay, I, I know you're there um, and I'll deal with you later, but you need to get out of the road right now because I don't have time for you. Um, and I think that, that worked for me. Um, the thing with imposter syndrome is that it's different for everybody. So people just need to find what works for them. Yeah, it's really interesting, profound concept to think about that following you, no matter what goals you've achieved or what goals you've set for yourself or where you, you know, you've gotten to in life, it's always going to be there. So you've got to think about it and know how to manage it and understand it's your own perception. You know, it's not real. So, hundred percent. Look, a lot of the very high performing people I've met, um, even though they sit in rooms surrounded by harsh critics, they are their own harshest critic. Um, and I think you'll probably find a lot of people you talk to on this podcast will fall into that category. Mm, yeah, I think so, for sure. Following up from that, the test pilot side of things, which sounds very, very exciting. Let's maybe begin with what's a test pilot? Sure. You know, what, and what's a typical day of a test pilot look like? What do you do? Well, there's no answer to the second part of your question, but I'll answer, I'll answer the first part. <laughs> I thought so. Um, <laughs> I wrote in brackets here, and there's probably no typical day, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, a test pilot is a pilot who has a whole bunch of operational experience who then goes and gets educated and trained um, to test new aeroplanes or aeroplanes that have been heavily modified or changed. And the idea is that somebody with uh, a 
a more specific skill set should look at these aircraft first before they are given to a line pilot to go and take out on a, on a standard mission. So I think about test pilots as being the bridges between pilot pilots and engineer and engineer engineers. Um, and a lot of the time you find yourself being the translator between the two. And you kind of get that when you look at what the training looks like. So test pilot school is basically a master's degree in engineering and a whole bunch of flying. So you're getting both of those skill set, uh, both of those skill sets jammed together. It's intense crash course. <laughs> it is incredibly intense. It's uh, USAF TPS is 48 weeks and it is every single one of those days is intense. Is that the sort of um, place that most people who want to become test pilots go to train or is there many different routes and what's, yeah, what's the training look like? There's a number of schools around the world. Uh, there's not very many. Um, we're talking, there's the United States Air Force School, there's the US Navy School, there's a school in the UK called Empire Test Pilot School, uh, there's a school in France called EPNA and there's uh, a school in Canada called International Test Pilot School and then there's a, a smattering of others around the world. Um, so what the training looks like, I guess from scratch, is for a military test pilot is you would do your your flying your primary flying training, then you would go and fly an operational type and get really good at that, and then as soon as you're good at that, you, you move to something else. Um, you, <laughs> you go. That's right. You go through selection and go to test pilot school to become a test pilot, and that and that test pilot skill set really builds on all your operational flying experience. And so why do you? fly so many different aircraft in test pilot school what does that tell you and what does that train you to do that does a few things it first up it shows you and you might not believe me but it shows you that all aircraft are pretty much the same so whether you are talking about an f-15 or the an-2 cold giant russian biplane the things you care about are the same so you care about you know how the aeroplane takes off, how it lands, you care about at which points it might fall out of the sky. And while those, while those things look different in terms of numbers, all the concepts are the same. So flying lots of different aeroplanes teaches you to understand what the core concerns are and how to approach a new aeroplane that you might not have flown before. Because um, that's kind of the ultimate end game is that you can jump into an airplane you haven't flown before and you should be able to hopefully before you fly it identify all the important things that you need to look at. Um, so that that's number one. Number two is test pilot school is all about um, learning about different flight characteristics and different handling characteristics and different performance characteristics of aircraft in theory and then you fly all these different aircraft to see some of that in practice. So you fly aircraft that are well designed, that you can see how things how things look when they work well. Then you also fly aircraft that are not very good with some of these characteristics. So you can see what it looks like when it's not so good, right? Um, and having that, you know, from sitting in the classroom and trying to conceptualize what it looks like when you have an aircraft that is that is statically unstable in the pitch axis to being able to jump into an aircraft that verges on that and see what that feels like. Um, that's really important in cementing that that knowledge. Uh, I think um, you know many pilots fly one or two types their entire lives, and um, yeah, you can get sort of stuck in your sort of limited perception of what you know that aircraft does. And um, I think looking broader would definitely make you a much better pilot, and you know, set you up for any kind of aircraft you want to fly moving forward as well, um, and be a safer pilot, I imagine too. Absolutely, you know, it's a it's a really magnificent skill set to have, and and there is one more piece um, that's you know the third part of why we fly so many aircraft, and it boils down to learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, when you fly an aircraft, um, when you fly one aircraft for your job, like the way I used to fly the P three before I went to test pilot school, you put a lot of effort into knowing the aircraft inside and out, you know, into being able to name all the springs and uh, knowing all the numbers and and all that. Right? When you do test, uh, you might not have that privilege because you are flying something that's new and the numbers don't exist yet, or you're fly flying something that's been changed and you have to work out how it's changed. And that's a deeply uncomfortable feeling for, um, for pilots. So flying so many different aircraft, um, a lot of them with minimal preparation, um, gets you used to that idea that it's okay to feel uncomfortable in a cockpit and that you know enough to move forward probably a bit late for me now but i would have loved to have done something like that as a career 
There's a national test pilot school in America, which is a civilian school, just saying. Really? Oh. Yep. And I guess because you can do it as a, um, you know, in private industry, you can be a test pilot too. Absolutely. All the big companies have test pilots and some of the small ones too. So you never say never. So a couple um, couple weeks ago, I had Jeremy Sequera on the show, who's a flight test engineer. So what's your relationship as a test pilot like to a flight test engineer? And um, how do you work together as a team? That's a, a really great question because flight test is a real team sport. The reason that's the case is because you're solving really new problems. So for, for most people, you know, when you, when you have a problem, for most people in aviation, that is, when you have a problem, there's usually an answer written in a book somewhere that you, ha- that you just have to find. When you're talking about a flight test, you are talking about novel problems that nobody solved before. And in that context, uh, multiple brains are always better than one brain. So we operate under what's called um, flight test teams. And a flight test team might be composed of a test pilot, a flight test engineer, and a flight test system specialist uh, who all have different, slightly different skills, but complementary skills, and who together kind of form the ideal unit to tackle this new problem. So I actually know Jeremy really well. He's an awesome guy. Um, <laughs> He's like, tell Maz uh, that flight test engineers are cooler. <laughs> he texts me. <laughs> I don't know about I don't know about that. Um, I, can we settle on as cool? Um, so at it's very diplomatic. <laughs> at the aircraft research and development unit, where both Jeremy and I worked in flight test, um, you would you would work in these flight test teams, and you would really. Um, use each other's skills to complement your own skill set to get the the best outcome. And you work very, very closely. And there's a lot of bouncing ideas off each other. There's a lot of reviewing each other's work because somebody else always picks up um, something that you haven't seen. Mm, That's that's true. Yeah. When I was talking to him in his interview, he was saying, yeah, a lot of it's just communication. It's all just making sure you're a good communicator because that's sort of, you know, when working in the team, that's one of the most important things. A hundred percent, and that translates right through, right? So we talked about anti-submarine warfare. Communication up and down the the tube is absolutely essential. Flight test, communication between the team is absolutely essential. And then communication between the team and external parties is essential. And when you think about how difficult some of this communication can be, um, some of the flight tests you might be doing, you might be in the aircraft, but there's somebody sitting in the control room who's looking at your telemetry data and now you have to communicate with somebody who's in a completely different environment to you. Um, so we spend a lot of time working out how to communicate effectively because that can be, you know, that can actually be the difference between life and death in, in flight test. Well, um, that might be a good segue into um, you talking about some of your tertiary studies. I know that it was very heavily weighted around STEM. Um, did that help with uh, and guide you through all this career, particularly as a test pilot, I imagine, it could have come in handy. And um, tell us about your studies and what you did. It was, until recently, very hev- heavily uh, STEM-leaning. You're right. Um, I've started to expand my horizons. Um, so I started uh, doing a Bachelor of Science in Mathematics and Physics, and I really loved that. Uh, like I said earlier, you know, I was, I was a big nerd uh, all through high school, and uh, that really let my inner nerd shine. Um, and then... About halfway through my operational career, I kind of felt the need to get back into academics. So I did a a master's of systems engineering, uh, which was really interesting because I had already started working in operational test and evaluation. So I was kind of working in the in the project world on the on the periphery of it. And a bunch of things I learned in systems engineering were suddenly explaining the things I was living day to day, which was really cool. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and both of those combined really did help me at test pilot school. Um, they just provided a really good basis uh, for me to move to something as challenging as test pilot school and do well. Uh, test pilot school itself is a uh, is a master's degree in in engineering, um, and that was you know a two year master's compressed into one year, and it was very very intense, um, academically speaking, um, with the flying on top. And then my my latest education foray is actually a humanities. Um, oh, cool. Masters. Um, I have just got back from uh, what's called War College, which is think strategy and leadership um, for uh, for senior officers. And I uh, spent a year studying grand strategy, which was really cool in a totally different way. And 
I'm happy to report that a lot of the skills are actually transferable. So the analytical and critical thinking skills I learned uh, in all my STEM um, travels really transfer quite well to uh, to when you try doing something different, which is really cool. Yeah, wow. Does that feed into further developing that sort of communication uh, aspect of your job? Um, and does that reinforce that? 100%. In fact, writing is one of the constants uh, right throughout. So one of the things that test pilots and flight test engineers do a lot of is writing reports that effectively communicate uh, scientific and technical data. Um, and then my uh, my latest lot of writing has been uh, on different subjects, but it's all the same concepts and all the same skills. Um, and it's it's just such an important skill set, effective communication, that um, I think you will struggle to find anybody you talk to in this podcast who hasn't found it an absolute central feature of what they do. Yeah, even just communicating on radio, which freaks me out. <laughs> I'm terrible. I can barely even communicate on this podcast, let's be real. So, oh, come you know, on radio. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm always like, uh, you know, as a guest, go nuts. You know, you don't want to hear me talk. It's all about you. So, yeah. I, I actually have a confession to make. I've done a bunch of radio and a couple of podcasts and some um, and some other things that have been recorded and I've never been able to listen to myself because oh. it sounds so different when, you know, it sounds so different coming over a speaker to what you sound like to yourself. Mm, totally, so yeah. when anything gets released, I have to get my husband to listen and tell me whether it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> And if he's honest, that's good, um, but could also be bad as well. And you're like, <laughs> he's generally been pretty happy, so. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I've been too scared to listen back to some of the earlier episodes of uh, Up and Away, so because I know you know it naturally gets better as well. Yep. And I think if you do more and more interviews, you know, you slowly get better at it as well. So I'm a bit scared to like listen back and hear some of the older stuff, but. You know. And I think if you listen to yourself, again, it's a bit like imposter syndrome, right? You hear all the imperfections, like you hear every um and you hear every ah, uh, whereas when other people listen to you, they hear the amazing story and you, you don't hear that because you know the story. Totally, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so you're picking up on all the stuff that's like super obvious to you. And, and speaking of imposter syndrome, man, it's like I'm a two-hour student pilot interviewing legends of Australian aviation and people who have crazy stories and you know you're getting comfortable being uncomfortable see you should really go to test pilot school all right done that's on my <laughs> list <laughs> that would be so good yeah definitely i have to do it <laughs> um does it cost a lot of money i imagine that if you were a um yeah you're not you're nodding <laughs> no one can see this but you're like yes <laughs> yeah it's expensive uh because if, if for no other reason but the uh, flight time and all sorts of interesting airplanes Totally. Mm. Well, I'll need to get some wealthy podcast sponsor to uh, pay for it for me. Hint, hint. <laughs> good, good luck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure I'm not the first person to think about that, but yeah. Um, so I read an article you wrote recently um, about there being an obvious lack of pathways to becoming an astronaut as an Australian citizen. Now, here's something out of left field. Um, due in part to us not really having our own domestic space agency, could you elaborate on your thoughts about this and what you think we need to do as a country to open this field up for future pilots and keen space explorers? This is such a massive question. And, you know, since I wrote that piece, I think I wrote that in 2017, um, we now have a space agency, which is really cool because that's the first step. Um, one, one of the things that has been, I guess, a little bit frustrating for me is that one of the logical next steps uh, from, from being a test pilot is space, is astronaut stuff. And that's something that I have ever since I read the right stuff um, and ever since I got interested in aviation, that's something that I've, I've really wanted to do. Uh, but uh, up, up to this point, there's really been no pathway for Australian citizens to become astronauts. Uh, of course, Dr. Andy Thomas a uh, very famous Australian-born astronaut, but he became an American before he became an astronaut. So when you see pictures of him in NASA gear, he's wearing the American flag on his shoulder. Um, I I would love to see in the future a pathway for young Australians to be able to go into space um, wearing the Australian flag on their shoulder. It's it's not it's too late for me, um, but it would be lovely to see a pathway for young Australians to aspire to that and to be able to execute it. Um, and th this is, we're talking government astronauts here, we're talking NASA. Um, of course, 
there are a bunch of countries that have sent astronauts to space with NASA, you know, Italy, Japan, um, a whole bunch who um, who don't have their own space programs of the size of NASA's, uh, but they have cooperative um, arrangements that allow them to send astronauts up with NASA. Um, so I would love to see something like that in the future. Um, of course, the the world of space um, is changing and increasingly uh, there are commercial options as well. Um, in fact, a really good friend of mine uh, that I went through test pilot school um, with has just been picked up by Virgin Galactic as one of their pilots. So that's that's becoming an option. It's pretty cool. It is, it is so <laughs> cool. cool. It is so cool. Um, so that's becoming an option um, more and more as well. Uh, but yeah, you know, I would love to see in the future um, a pathway for young Australians to go to space. Yeah, and I think um, having something that's like government sponsored as well, like a government space agency, shows that that's something that we're keen on investing in as a nation as well. Where there can be, you know, private, you know, commercial enterprises out there that are, you know, picking up people to do that kind of job. But I think having that sort of government backing looks like we're serious about it, and I think it's more, you know, obvious for people who are like growing up and wanting to do that, that that's a pathway. Oh, 100%. Uh, the establishment of the Australian Space Agency is a really, really good thing and, and a very exciting development. And it's kind of the, it's the starting point for all of this stuff that we're talking about. Totally, yeah. I'd love to interview Andy Thomas too. He was on my list for a long time. So if anyone knows how to get in touch with him, <laughs> I'm putting the official word out there. He'd be awesome to talk to. He would be. So you're talking about taking command of your first operational squadron towards the end of the year. What's that going to look like as a operation and what's the plans for you for the rest of the year and moving into 2021? This is something I'm so excited about. Uh, I started my operational career at number 10 squadron, uh, the P3 squadron, um, and then I came back to number 10 squadron uh, to be a flight commander in 2016. And I'm just so excited to be about to take command of the squadron as its commanding officer at the end of this year. It's awesome. Um, it is. It really is. Um, it's something I've wanted to do ever since I found out it was a thing. And I'm just so excited that, that it's 10 Squadron and that it's still the P3. So 10 Squadron uh, now operates two uh, P3s that are configured for EW, for electronic warfare, which do really cool things, um, really cool stuff. And, uh, and that is just super exciting. So I take command of that squadron at the end of the year. And then the next couple of years uh, are going to be probably hectic and challenging and uh, immensely rewarding. And I just can't wait. That's awesome. What kind of uh, operations are you going to be doing? I probably can't talk about that too much. Too much? Uh, <laughs> well, as, as you can imagine, there's, uh, yeah. there's a whole bunch of classification issues with talking about, uh, about that sort of thing. Um, suffice to say that it's a P3 and it's a crew um, and it's a whole bunch of support elements that, that go around that, um, that go out and do some really cool things in some very interesting places. Awesome. Oh, that's very exciting and I'm excited for you. Thanks. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so into the GA world, you're doing some GA flying at the moment and I've heard that you own a plane. Yep. Um, so my husband and I, when, when we worked out that um, there was only going to be a limited amount of time for me to stay flying in the Air Force uh, as I move up the ranks, we decided that a really good way to combat that and to indulge our, our dual love of aviation, because my, my husband is uh, a, a Air Force air crew um, officer as well, um, would be to buy a plane. So we bought a light sports aircraft made by Pipistrel in Slovenia. Um, it's sort of unfortunately named for 2020. It's called the Pipistrel virus. Um, but it, <laughs> but it's, it's this it's not really, written on the side, is it? Uh, it is. And actually, the, the little dot above the eye looks like a coronavirus. We're thinking about oh, covering no. it up. But it's, it's this really cool aircraft that's been around for quite a few years now. Um, it's a high-performance light sports aircraft. Um, and awesome. while those two might sound like a contradiction in terms, um, think it burns about 15 litres an hour, but it can cruise at 140 knots and it's plus 4 minus 2G. So it's this really slick, awesome piece of kit. And we're really enjoying flying it um, around on weekends. 
That's cool. Uh, and about Pipistrelle, actually, um, the first interview I ever did on this podcast was with uh, Barry Rogers, and um, he is operating uh, the electric Pipistrelle, the Pipistrelle Electros, which is pretty cool. The Alpha Electro, yep. And that was the yeah, first the electric Electro. aircraft in uh, in Australia. I actually, uh, the way I found out about Pipistrelle was from reading about their electric aircraft. So um, that that came about a couple of years ago. It was just after Christmas um, a couple of years ago. And I read yeah, about that yeah. and then started looking into Pipistrelle. And that's how we, uh, in the end, ended up buying an airplane from them. Um, really cool company doing some really interesting uh, sort of forward-looking things with electric aircraft. Mm, totally yeah they definitely seem to be investing in sort of cool new technologies and battery stuff and yeah it's pretty exciting they're not the only ones either Uh, one of the things i'm really interested in is uh future aviation concepts so we're talking electric we're talking hydrogen fuel cell um and because that's really that really is the future of aviation is zero emission flight um and actually only recently the first commercial sized um airplane powered by hydrogen fuel cells um, when flying in the UK. So progress is happening very quickly and it's fascinating to observe. It's pretty cool, huh? What kind of GA flying are you doing with the Pipistra? Have you got any cool plans of any flights to do um, in the future and stuff? Are you, do you have your favourite flying destinations? At the moment, we're largely still learning the aircraft and getting comfortable with it and just exploring um, South Australia my husband has this grand plan that we should take the Pipistrelle across to New Zealand. I'm just not sure how I Whoa. how I feel about flying in a single engine aircraft all that way. <laughs> uh, but you know, as our radius of action grows, we're looking at flying down Tassie Way, and really, the um, there's so much to see in Australia um, from a small aircraft when you're closer to the ground and going slower. That I don't think we'll run out of places to go and see anytime soon. Mm, that's true. So what advice would you give to young and upcoming pilots wanting to pursue their dreams in aviation and perhaps pursue a similar career path to you? It really boils down to if this is something you want to do or think you want to do, just go for it. Don't listen to people who might say that you shouldn't do it or you can't do it. And don't listen to your inner voice that says you're not good enough to do it. Uh, just, just give it a crack and see for yourself. I come across a lot of people who say, I really want to do this, but I don't think I'm good enough. And I I tell every single one of them, just give it a go. Just try. For people who are not sure, I highly recommend going for a flight in a small aircraft because I've found people have one of two responses to uh, to that experience. Uh, Some people like me jump in a small aircraft for the first time and as soon as they take off, they know this is something they're going to love and uh, and they sometimes decide straight away like I did they want make a, they want to make aviation their career. Other people might think they want to be in aviation. They might think they want to be a pilot and they jump in a small aircraft and they come back down going, nope, that is definitely not for me. And and that's a really good outcome too, right? Uh, before before you invest in training, etc. So I would say to people to young people who are interested, um, go get yourself a trial flight or jump in a glider. And, uh, and just have a feel of what this feels like and what kind of response it, it provokes in you, and then you'll know whether this is something for you or not. Um, the third piece is a lot of people seem to think that you have to be good at maths and physics to be a pilot, um, and I guess listening to people like me probably doesn't help because I, I, was, <laughs> good, <you> <laughs> I was good at it, um, and now here I am. But um, it is absolutely not the case. It is absolutely not a requirement. Sure, it helps if you want to be a test pilot and you're going to get really deep into um, some pretty technical stuff. But to be a pilot is yeah, absolutely off the list now. <laughs> <laughs> to to be a pilot is absolutely not a requirement. And there are there are magnificent pilots out there who come from humanities backgrounds or from from any background really who just love aviation. So regardless of your background. Um, if this is something you think you're interested in, just give it a go. I can certainly vouch for the military side. Um, there is no assumed knowledge. So when you turn up, they teach you literally everything you need to know. Yeah, from the ground up. From the ground up, absolutely. In more ways than one. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess it's a good um, way to get into it, particularly if um, you're worried about the financial side of things as well. Yeah, you're getting world-class aviation training and not only are you not paying for it, you're getting paid for it. 
Totally. It's pretty yeah. good. I mean, it's pretty pretty good. <laughs> so I, we get to the fun question side of the, um, I mean, they're all fun questions, but this is the, you know, fun thing that I ask everyone. Um, so which is one of the questions that we sort of touched on earlier, which is um, what would your most memorable flight be so far? Um, and this could be like a nail biting thing or like a awesome scenic thing. Um, or something that, yeah, you really enjoyed? This is an almost impossible question for me to answer, uh, but I will answer You're talking it about you. the buckets earlier. So I, I am <laughs> um, because I have had so many magnificent experiences flying all sorts of different things, all sorts of different places uh, that it's, it's impossible for me to pick one or a couple. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you about the coolest flight test sortie I had. And then I'm going to tell you about uh, not necessarily the most memorable flight, uh, operational flight I've done, but one that means the most to me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, we'll go to the flight test sortie first. Um, I, you know, I went to test pilot school and I came back expecting to do largely systems type flight test where you might put a, a new system on an aircraft or, or potentially a new store in an aircraft and, yeah, and you have to see how it behaves. But I, I certainly wasn't expecting to do any kind of structural flight test and then when I had been back for a couple of years, uh, one of one of the P3s had um, kind of a weird vibration issue that we um, that we had to look at, and I was the P3 test pilot, so I'm the person who uh, who got to look at it. And to cut a long story short, what we ended up doing after a bunch of investigations is turning a P3, a real live big P3, into a giant wind tunnel by tufting it by putting little bits of string. Um, on different parts of the aircraft, which is a really old school flight test technique and one that I never thought I would ever get to do for real. Uh, but we tufted it and then I flew it while a test pilot buddy of mine flew a Hornet because it was the only thing that was fast enough to take imagery in the regime that we were flying. He flew a Hornet with a camera in the back who was getting imagery of, uh, of the tufting as I put this P3 through its, pa through its paces. And if you had tried to explain that to me when I first got back from test pilot school, that that's something I would get to do. I, would, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, yeah, it was a, like, no way. It was a really amazing experience, you know, to, um, to have this P3 in a particular uh, regime, flight regime, that excited this vibration and to have a Hornet on the knife edge above you to record the, um, the tufting that's on top of the aircraft. It was a really, really cool thing to do. That's awesome. It, it really was. Um, and operational sortie. So... Um, so many of these come to mind, but the one that means the most to me was a search and rescue sortie um, that I did in 2011 with my crew, where it was actually the second flight for the day. Um, that's very unusual. We don't really do that very often. Where we had got back from an operational mission in the morning and, uh, and there was a search and rescue that we were called out to. So, of course, we went um, and we ended up flying a ex extended maximum crew duty day um, for a successful search and rescue and the reason this means so much to me is, you know, a lot of the stuff we've talked about, it's kind of fun or different or, um, or rewarding personally. But uh, with this particular mission, um, I could feel just how much we were contributing. Um, and, and that's really important to me. When you work out, you know, the stuff that you do day to day as a job can help someone's life or, you know, have a sort of incredibly positive impact on them. I think that's really rewarding for sure. It, it absolutely was. And um, even just even just us being on the scene and the navigator and the crew talking to the person who we were uh, working on getting rescued uh, and mm. and hearing how much his voice changed when he heard that we were there to look out for him. And that really sticks with me. And, you know, it was almost 10 years ago. Um, so I, I wrote about this for Australian Aviation um, a couple of years ago and got some really amazing feedback because um, to us, this is what we do. So it doesn't seem special, but... Um, Lots of people don't know that this is what we do. And when they read about it, they go, wow, that's, that's really amazing. Totally, yeah. Sounds great. So on the final uh, question of the podcast, um, what would your dream flight you could take just for fun be? Anything in space. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool, hey? As simple as that. <laughs> yeah. As simple as that. You know, I don't think that's on the cards for me, uh, but it certainly is a dream. And I, I don't know, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a kid for whom that's not a dream. And in some ways, I'm still a big kid. Um, so I guess the context for that is I've, I've already got to fly so many of the things um, earthbound that I wanted to fly. 
um, that 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 remains the outstanding dream. Totally. Well, hopefully, I mean, some of the commercial stuff mightn't be far off, so we might all get the opportunity to sort of have a pretty cool space flight in the future. So he's hoping. Yeah, come on, Elon, get get with it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, yeah, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your amazing story. I was saying off air before this, I was like, there's so many aspects of your career and life in general and so many things you've experienced so far that I'd love to have almost a podcast on every single aspect um, because there's so much to ask and so much to you know dive into. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And I think it's a great inspiration for people who want to pursue a career with the RAAF and do some amazing things like you've done. You are most welcome. I've really had a ball. Uh, I love talking about airplanes and I love talking about adventures and I will I will do it uh, pretty much for hours. Um, so <laughs> thank you very much for giving me the opportunity, uh, particularly as I sit here in, uh, in quarantine. Uh, it's really made my day. So um, I really appreciate it. No worries. Yeah. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode 13 of Up and Away. Again, can't thank you all enough for your support. It really means a lot. Now that we're all emerging from lockdown here in Melbourne, I'm looking forward to getting the podcast out on the road a bit over summer. And it'd be cool to do some episodes on location and hopefully meet some people face to face. How weird. (laughs) But for now, don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And I'll see you next week.